You're listening to Crossroads International Church Podcast. Welcome. We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrgs.nl. Now, let's get into the podcast. Good morning, Crossroads. It is so good to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Alan. I'm one of the family ministry leaders here at Crossroads and if you don't know me, this is it. This is who I am. And um, I'm really excited to be here this morning to lead us into Missions Month. And we do this every August where we say, we want to talk about missions. We want to talk about engaging the world. And this is something we believe as Christians is part of our, our inherent calling as followers of Christ, that we need to make an impact and a difference in this world. It is also part of our vision as a church, that we not only want to encounter Jesus and embrace one another, but we actually want to let the world know, hey, we are here make a difference. Now, before I get into our, our sermon series, I just want to pick up Alpha for a second and really want to encourage you to really pray about Alpha. Pray about your friends, your families, your colleagues, and think about people who are curious about faith. And maybe invite those people to join for Alpha. But importantly, don't just invite them, tell them that you're going. It's much easier to, to invite someone to something that you're actually attending. And I can promise you it will enrich your faith and will enrich their faith as well, or at least their journey of searching. All right? And that is something I really want to encourage you to do throughout this month of August, since Alpha is only coming a bit later. All right? So this month we are picking up Missions Month, and we're going to do it slightly different. Normally we'll talk about the missional imperative. God is telling us to go into the world. With this series, I'm kind of taking that as an assumption. You know that you are to love your neighbor. That is something Christ calls of you and me, to love those around us and to share the gospel. I'm not going to be talking about that. I'm going to be talking about who is your neighbor. Right? And as most of you know, especially in the Netherlands, the world has changed over the last few decades in so many ways. And that your neighbor is not somebody who thinks and looks like you anymore. Your neighbor really is somebody who comes from a very different worldview and perhaps a different religious background in yourself. They are your work colleagues, they are your neighbours, the people you meet on the metro, you go to groceries with, you go to class with. These people think about the world in a very, very different way than us. And it's important for us as Christians, if we want to love those around us, that we have some understanding of who they are. And, and the reason why this is important for, for me and I know for you as well is, my experience has been that if I just know a little bit about someone else, it just makes conversation so much easier. I just have an entry point to ask a question or point out, hey, I've heard you guys think this. Maybe this is how we think about things. It just opens up conversation and dialogue. And that is really my heart for this series, that we grow in our understanding and love of our neighbors. Now, just to give it some context, um, can I get the slide, please? Currently in the world... Christianity makes up about a third of the world's population. That means one out of three people are Christian. Islam comes in in a close second. And estimates are by 2050 that they'll also be a third of the world's population. Now, Hinduism and Buddhism, smaller populations, um, about one in five people you meet will be a Hindu or a Buddhist in, uh, on the global stage, that is. Now... Hinduism and Buddhism obviously smaller populations, but they still have a very strong influence in our Western culture and Western 
conceptualization of who our religious neighbor is. Can I get the next slide, please? Here in the Netherlands, things look slightly different. Um, with almost one out of every two people you meet being non-Christian or being unaffiliated to a religious tradition. And that is why in this series, we'll be talking about Hinduism, Buddhism, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam, and then ending it off on a secular view. What does that actually mean for us here in the Netherlands to reach out to our neighbors? How do these people think and view the world, and how can we possibly share the good news with them? Now, just a couple of disclaimers, which is really important. I am a Christian theologian, so when I talk about these other religions, I'm talking about them from a Christian perspective. Right? And I'm trying to understand them for us as a community to help us love them better. That's really important. I'm not an expert on other traditions, although this is something I really am passionate about. I do a lot of studying into other religions. And I believe, I really honestly believe the way we understand and relate to other people will have a big impact on the future of our society because the world dynamics are changing. And how we embrace those who think about the world differently is really important for the future. Then, as uh, Angelique mentioned in the announcements as well, on August 24th, I've invited a professor from my university to come and talk to us about this question. How, what does it mean for us as Christians that there are other religions? Is there any truth or value in other religious traditions? Or is Christianity the sole bearer of truth? Right? And what do we do with statements like Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. Beautiful statement. But it's a very exclusivist. Right? But what does it mean for how we love our neighbors? Right? And if you think about that historically, the way we answer that is vital. Because we've answered that historically in very bad ways, that we've been able to subjugate other people as a result of how we answer that question. So on August 24th, we'll be delving into some of those questions. I just don't have time in the sermon series myself to do that. Now... Just to give the sermon some structure, what I'll be doing every week, I will be going through, I'll start off with a scripture, which I'm kind of, gonna, kind of going to use as a ribbon, just to tie the whole sermon together. All right? So I'll start with this passage, and I'll end with the same passage. And that passage will give us some insight into our Christian response to that religion. So as I read the passage, give it some thought as I do the discussion on the other religion. How are these things distinct from Hinduism, Buddhism, or Islam as we get there? Right? And then what I'll do is I'll give us a historical overview just against the biblical timeline so that you can kind of see how this religion developed compared to our biblical story. And then also what we'll do is then we'll look at some points of connection. Where, where, where do we agree with our religious other neighbor? And then to win, towards the end of the sermon, we'll look very clearly at what does our biblical message say about what we believe about God and how does that differ from our religious neighbor? All right? So it's going to be loaded. I hope you're excited for it. I know I am. I'm very nervous as well because it's a lot, but I'm excited. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. It reads as follows. At one time you were like a dead person because of the things you did wrong and your offenses against God, so that you were children headed for punishment just like everyone else. And then it says so beautifully, however, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of the great love that he has for us. You are saved by God's grace. 
And God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus. God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possessed. It's not something you did that you can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishments, created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. Let us pray. And dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, we kick off this missions month and seek to understand our, our neighbors who view the world in a completely different way than us. Lord, I pray that as we have conversations around this, that we'll grow in respect and understanding of who they are and where they come from. And Lord, would you lead us as well to not be hesitant or uncertain, but see that there are points of connection that we can love them and love them well. Lord, I pray that you would be with us now as we have this conversation. And at the end, may you show us the truth of your gospel. All right, so Hinduism, just checking my time. Hinduism is considered to be one of the oldest religions in the world. And at least they claim so themselves. It developed in the Indus River Valley and it is the formation of breakaway tribes from the Proto-Indo-Europeans. So the Proto-Europeans is kind of a tribal group that settled across Central Europe, Western, oh, sorry, Western Europe, Central Asia, and in the Indus River Valley. And the reason why we think this is, if we look at some of the religions and the languages of that time, there's a lot of overlap. So between, for instance, the Greco-Romans and the people of the Indus River Valley and the, and the Hindu belief systems, there's a lot of overlap between the beliefs and then also um, their language structures. So basically, so they settled in this area. And then around the year 2000, can I get the timeline for a second, please? So around the year 2000, the Vedas started to be formed as an oral tradition. Now, the Vedas is what the Hindus considered their religious text. Right? So it started as an oral tradition, and this was kind of communicated during the time of Abraham and was only committed to writing during the time of King David, right? when it became a formalized text. Right? Then soon after this, almost during the time of the, the Babylonian exile, you get a second body of texts called the Upanishads. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correct at all, but the Upanishads. Now, technically, the Upanishads are considered to be part of the Vedas, and they were produced during this time, and they, their composition took place long after the time of Jesus. So it took a really long time to compose the different Upanishads, but it kind of started in this period. But the Upanishads are more of a commentary on the Vedas. The Vedas are kind of the hymns and the liturgies, liturgies which kind of define ritual practice for the Hindus. And the Upanishads kind of give some commentary on our understanding of that. Now, just one text that is very important there is the Bhagavad Gita. You can remove that, which was also composed during that time. Now, the Bhagavad Gita is, has kind of become like what we consider the Gospels in Christianity. Right? Almost every Hindu family would have a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. It's about the length of two of our Gospels and tells the story of Arjuna. Now, Arjuna was set to become king, and his father, I'm not exactly sure, I think his father died, and his uncle takes control of the kingdom for him. So kind of like as a 
in between king. But instead of keeping the throne for, for Arjuna, he keeps it for his own son. And what ensues basically is this conflict between Arjuna and his family members. And the Bhagavad Gita tells this reflection basically where Arjuna is chatting with his charioteer, Krishna, that might be familiar to you, that is one of the deities in Hinduism, um, has this conversation, and this conversation is their reflection, becomes a reflection on life. Right, I'm not going to go much more into that, but that is one of the core texts that most Hindus ascribe to, although not everybody agrees with that. Just another thing, when I talk about any of these religions, there is no such thing as one Hinduism, or one Buddhism, or one any religion, not even one Christianity for that. There's a lot of different schools of thoughts which can, will kind of emphasize different things and priorities. So I just want to clarify that. And the same goes for Hinduism. So turning to our core beliefs in Hinduism. So I'm going to highlight three things. First things which might be a bit of a surprise to most Christians is that Hinduism actually only has conceptually one deity or one ultimate being called Brahman. Which is kind of weird for us because when we think of Hinduism normally in the West we think of they're speaking of a plethora of deities. And the schools of thought differ on this. Some say there's about 30 deities. Some say over 300 million. Which is kind of... Yeah, I struggle to comprehend how, what that even means. right? But in Hinduism, there is one ultimate reality called... Or deity called Brahman. Right? And from Brahman, all other life flows. Now, very important, in Hinduism, Brahman is over and above all creation... But everything is also extensions of him himself. So everything that is created contains Brahman. I'm going to get to that in a second. And even the deities themselves are not necessarily the full Brahman. Right? So how this works is the deities are manifestations of certain aspects of Brahman. So for instance, you have some of the popular ones like, like Vishnu is the sustainer and Shiva is the destroyer. And these play an important role in the cycle of reconciliation. Uh, no. Sorry. Reincarnation. Wow. Anyway, that's my next point. Anyway, um, so they play an important role in this, but they have very specific functions within, uh, within the deities, right? So the deities have a very specific manifestation or personification of the greater deity, Brahman, but they are not the whole revelation of who the deity is. And very important, the deity, Brahman, is always distant and unknowable, whereas the deities, they can be known and worshipped. Right? So that's very important. But then something gets even more interesting. So you have these core deities which kind of are, form part of the religious practices, but deities also have what they call avatars. So Krishna, for instance, is worshipped as a deity, but he's also just an avatar of Vishnu, which gets confusing for our Western mind, but it makes sense for a lot of Hindus. But even for a lot of Hindus, the scope can get difficult to comprehend. I think the most important thing for us, though, is that in Hinduism, there is a universal reality or a universal being that stands over and above all things, but is also part of all things. Secondly, the second point I want to highlight, or philosophy, is samsara, or the cycle of reincarnation and the journey of the soul. So this is something we all are kind of familiar with or have at least some idea of. So in, like I said earlier, the soul in Hinduism is called the Atman. And the Atman is really considered to be part of Brahman. So you carry something of divinity within yourself, which is 
quite a unique statement. And that's where you get that beautiful expression of namaste. I honor the Holy One that is within me. Right? Because the belief is really that you contain the divine within you. That is really conceptually the understanding. And also the, why, a lot of oh, why a lot of Hindus are vegetarian as well. Because a lot of life contains that. Right? So how this works conceptually is, is quite difficult. The journey of the soul would normally start with a lower life form like a fish or an insect, or depending on the different schools of thought, can even go to plant life. And your purpose of your soul, of your Atman, is to be reconnected with Brahman. So your whole life is to try and figure out, how do I get reconnected with the divine? Right? That is the purpose of your life. And two things play into this. There's um, Dharma and Karma. Right? Dharma is my duty. Right? So what is my duty as a human? Right? And historically, this had very much to do with the kind of function you had to perform within society. So whether you were a soldier, your duty was to be a good soldier, for instance. Today, this duty has much more to do with actually performing acts of compassion, acts of kindness, showing mercy, being a likable person, right? serving those around you. But part of this duty is also seeking spiritual knowledge. It's kind of seeking the understanding that this, is, this life is not really real. It's the letting go of ego so that I can become reunited with Brahman. Right? And how this functions is if you do your duty, you can ascend to a higher life form. Right? Now, karma is something we all know, and it's kind of popularized in the West. And we in the West kind of explain it as what comes around goes around. That's kind of our understanding of it. Right? Um, or what, what you'll reap what you sow kind of expressions. But karma really has to do with, I've done my duty well. I have done acts of compassion, acts of mercy, done those well. And if I've done those duty well, then my next life will be more fortunous. I'm not sure if that's a word. Right? Will be more prosperous, will be more well worth. But if I've not done my duty well, my next life, I will have certain misfortune. And, and for me, this is a difficult one. So, for instance, if somebody is born with a disability, for example, it is purely their own fault. Or if somebody gets cancer, that is a result of a past life. Right? This is my understanding thereof. I might be wrong in this, but that is just kind of my conceptualization thereof. So, but the journey, the purpose is then of your soul is to kind of seek release from this repetitive cycle. And you're all human, so you might have, have had a thousand lives already, and you wouldn't even know it. But to be human means you're kind of far up on that ladder of reaching some kind of state where you can rejoin Brahman. Now that is called moksha, when you reach that state. And moksha is quite an interesting thing because what happens with moksha is it's kind of described as a drop of water being dropped into the ocean. The self disappears because you become one with the ultimate reality. All right? Which is a very different conception in our Christian thought. The third thing I just want to highlight briefly is ahimsa, which I think is a very beautiful principle within Hinduism. And it's the principle of non-violence or non-injury. And you all might know Mahatma Gandhi. He's well known for this, who led non-violent protest in India and in their sought for liberation against the British. Now, now, I think one of the things just with ahimsa, obviously, again, relates to everything is divine and contains the ultimate reality, and I cannot hurt that. That's kind of the flow of thought.
Right. So, jumping to points of agreement for us as Christians. I'm going to start with Ahimsa just because it's such a beautiful one for myself. And if you listen to Mahatma Gandhi, he was enthralled with the person of Jesus. And you might recall the, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus speaks of turning the other cheek, of loving your enemy. These are foundational things for us as Christians, which we agree with our Hindu brothers and sisters. Paul in Romans 12 captures it this way. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but instead overcome evil with good. It's a point of connection in the way we serve the world around us. There's a pastor in America that passed away. He's a pastor and a peace activist. He passed away this last week. I didn't know anything about him. It just came on my timeline, but I thought this was so appropriate. He said, unless we are ready to die developing new, new non-violent attempts to reduce conflict, we should confess that we never really meant the cross was an alternative to the sword. Unless we are prepared to pay the cost of peacemaking, we may have no right to claim the label or preach the message of the gospel. That's Pastor Ron Snyder. It is foundational to our Christian beliefs and how we treat those around us. Second point of connection is the idea of a supreme being. We as Christians believe that there is a God that stands over all things. Although our conceptualization is very different. But just listen to this. This is from the Bhagavad Gita. And just listen to this with an open mind. And think of some of the texts from Revelation. And we'll, I'll, hi I'll highlight one of them as well. Arjuna writes, I, I see the splendor of an infinite beauty which illuminates the whole universe. I see thee as fire. I see thee as sun, blinding, incomprehensible. Heaven and earth and all the infinite spaces are with your spirit and before the wonder of your fearful majesty. Describing Brahman, the invisible, the unknowable, distant God. And it's a bit of an interesting thing if you look at Isaiah 6, for instance, one that I've been wrestling with this last week. Isaiah 6, you have this beautiful image of Isaiah in the throne room who comes undone and falls apart because he sees God in all his glory and the throne room filled with his glory. You kind of get this idea that God is overwhelming. And in Revelations, you get a lot of beautiful images of God's glory and awesomeness. Third thing, point of connection, and we've already mentioned this, is that as Christians and Hindus, we share a, a sense of duty, a sense of calling to, to love those around us, to treat others with compassion, with kindness. Did I do something? Oop, uh, thank you. That was close. You can leave that one, it's fine. Um, right. So, but now importantly, what are the points where we disagree with our Muslim neighbors? I mean, our Hindu neighbors. Right. And there are quite a few, and quite importantly, quite strong ones that we need to kind of just clarify. Firstly, our conception of God is very, very different. You see, for Hindus, Brahman is always unknowable, distant, beyond understanding. And that's why they need the deities to just kind of give them some insight into who Brahman is. In Christianity, God is over and above all things. But God is present in creation. But he is not associated with creation itself. Uh, that's an important distinction there, right? God is 
present and active in creation, but he is not creation himself. It's kind of like the idea of going to the Van Gogh Museum, looking at a piece of artwork. Yes, I can make some deductions about that artwork, but I can never confuse that artwork with being Van Gogh himself. Right? In Hinduism, you can actually do that. Secondly, what we know from Scripture, from the beginning of Genesis through to Revelations, God created us for relationship. In Genesis, Adam and Eve, God walks in the garden. We read Moses and David, and we see that they have these intimate conversations with God. Right? We have Jesus Christ who comes and lives and dwells amongst us. We have the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And at the end of time, we know that we will be reunited with Christ. It's a beautiful thing that God wants to make himself known, and in fact does make himself known to us. Second thing there, when we talk about Jesus Christ, he is not just some manifestation of an aspect of who God is. We as Christians believe Jesus Christ is God. So now, all of our Christian creeds, Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time. And that is really, really vital for our understanding of who Jesus is and who God is. And I, what I love so beautifully about that is Jesus shows us the fullness of who God is. And just to emphasize that idea of relationship, Jesus speaks so intimately of God as Father, Abba, Father. There's this intimacy which you just don't have in Hinduism. And I love when we worship here, we sing to God, we pray to God as if God is here. We can have a living relationship with God. The second major point of distinction relates to samsara and our concept of salvation. Now in Christianity, we don't have this idea of a repetitive cycle where you can move up and down a hierarchy. We don't have this bearing weight that we have to do good deeds to escape some kind of cycle. The Christian story really is one of grace, of a God who created the world good. And Genesis attests to that. He created and it was good. Humanity, it was very good. But then God in his wisdom gave us free will to choose our own way. He wanted us to choose him and relationship, but we chose a selfish end. And in that, a lot of evil pursued and followed. And we see that in ourselves. It's not just that I don't know that I have to do good things or that I need to be with God. Even though I know these things, I still struggle doing the right thing. And Christianity kind of understands there's no way for us as humans in our current state to kind of get to God. It's just not possible. No amount of good works or right knowledge about who God is will get you there. It really is about the transformation of the heart and of the soul, which happens through faith in Jesus Christ and the work of His Spirit in our hearts. And the beautiful thing there is that at the end, Christ says, you are accepted, you are loved. We sang it, you are royalty, we can be with God. I want to read Ephesians 2 again, just verse 4 and 5. 
And it says, however, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of the great love that he has for us. You are saved by God's grace. And God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ. God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace. By the goodness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. Now, three things there. Which I just want to you see God active in the story, God personal, God acting towards us. You see Jesus Christ, the one making salvation possible. And you see that it's a gift of grace. And I love it when our lives come to an end. Jesus gives us this promise from, from John, 12, John 14. Sorry, It says, my father, Jesus himself says, my father's house has room to spare. If that weren't the case, would I have... To- told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. When I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me so that where I am, you will be too. In Christian thought and understanding, when we die, we join all those who have gone before us and join them in a heavenly place with God where God is our God and we are his people. And there's no repetitive cycle of uncertainty or what the next life will hold. We have certainty because of what Christ has done. Amen. I hope that this has given you some understanding of your religious neighbor, your Hindu neighbor specifically. And I hope that at least breaks down some barriers for you in your conceptualization of who they are. And that, that you might feel free to actually engage with them and start a conversation. And have some tools to direct the conversation towards the gospel as well. Amen. Thank you for listening and we hope that you have a wonderful week. See you next time.